From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Sophia Lilly of Overmountain Vineyards in Tryon, North Carolina. Sophia talks to us about her involvement in the family farm and how things have changed over the years. Part of their growth has been a focus on improving quality. Since 2014, the Lilly family has put an increased emphasis on the quality of their fruit and their wines. Everything they do is done with tender, loving care, and it creates an experience that is unique and memorable. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back again. This time they remind us of some things to keep in mind when pairing food and wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council, and you can find out more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we are here today with Sophia Lilly of Overmountain Vineyards in Tryon, North Carolina. Sophia, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for inviting us out here. And I have to say, this is our very first recording that we've done uh, during COVID times. We've normally been doing virtual or remote recording, so it's good to be out here on a nice sunny day on the patio, socially distanced uh, with one of your dogs here, kind of sniffing around, saying, which one is this one? This is Seamus. Hi, Seamus. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be visiting with us as, yeah. as the interview goes on. So, Sophia, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Evermountain Vineyards? Absolutely. So, um, everybody, my name's Sophia Lilly. Uh, we've been on our farm now since 1994. Um, and my mom and dad, Frank and Lita Lilly, bought this property back in the 80s. And we've been operating as Overmountain Vineyards and open to the public since 2010. But we started growing grapes commercially in 1999. And before we opened to the public, we were commercial growers for the Biltmore House Estate. So what was the initial vineyard, what were the varieties that were planted initially? Our first grape variety that we planted was Cabernet Sauvignon. Actually, we're sitting in front of this um, vineyard here, and it's our oldest vineyard. So these vines are about 21 years old now. And when we first planted, we started off with just three acres of Cabernet Sauvignon. And then a couple years later, we planted some Merlot. And then from the Merlot, we grew to a little bit of Cabernet Franc and a little bit of Petit Verdot, so only about an acre of each of those. And then it was probably around 2008 when we discovered Petit Mansang, mm-hmm. and then we started growing that as well. So we grow almost three acres, almost four acres of Petit Mansang. It's extremely low yielding, but I'd say it's one of our best varieties as far as the flavor profile. Unfortunately, it's just very limited. That makes sense. Sometimes the, oftentimes the best things are the stuff that come in small quantities. So, Always. Yeah. Very cool. So you mentioned that you were growing for Biltmore before. So uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, growing wine and then uh, growing grapes rather, and then shipping it off for the, versus where you are now. Yeah. So in the very beginning, when we first started growing grapes, anytime a farmer is getting into some form of agriculture, you don't want to start growing any form of product unless you have an outlet. And... The Biltmore House, uh, a lot of people don't realize, is actually the number one most visited winery in the entire United States. So they produce a lot of wine, and they need a lot of grapes. So when we first started growing grapes, we knew that we needed to find someone to buy our fruit. So we immediately reached out to Biltmore House, and 
they bought our fruit every single year once it became to the point where we were growing every year. When you start growing grapes, it takes at least four seasons to have grapes that are worthy of making wine with them. So for the first four years, we just tended the grapes, and then after that, that final period, we started taking it up there every single season. Now there, when you grow for when you're a grower for a winery, you have to really make sure that there's a lot of things going on. Um, for example, Biltmore House would come and visit throughout the growing season and inspect the grapes, inspect a lot of different things. They have um, a great winemaker, Sharon Finchek. And her and Bernard, they would come down every few weeks, take samples, check things out. Hmm. And when it, the time came to pick grapes, they'd give us a call and we would pick them all and deliver everything before one o'clock oh, wow. on harvest day. Holy cow. So as a small family farm, we would get pulled out of school, my siblings and I. Um, for agriculture, you're exempt. You're, you're exempt absences. So. Yeah. It was a really great day on the farm. We didn't have to go to school. We picked grapes all day. We got to deliver them to the winery. Um, it was a really awesome experience. We learned a lot from them. They're great business partners. And we grew for them um, up until a few years ago when we started keeping our production in-house uh, just so that we would have enough wine to produce for our guests. Very cool. So what led to the decision between um, you know selling to Biltmore and then producing everything yourself? Well, we've always, we've always made all of our own wine um, as far as the production goes. We grow what we make. But, it, you know, when we were first opening up, we couldn't grow, we couldn't produce everything that we grow and sell it all. We would be sitting on inventory because we were so small. We were a tiny winery. We opened up with 300 cases of wine on deck. And, you know, when you grow, when you're a tiny winery like we were, we were open three days a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I can't imagine producing 2,000 cases of wine and only being open three days a week. So it wasn't to the right scale. So at that okay. point, we were really small. We were only making a small amount of wine every year. We would just keep enough for what we needed to make, and then we'd sell the rest of it off to Biltmore. But as the years would pass and we started noticing we're, we're a little busier than we used to be. <laughs> oh, we're running out of Chardonnay. Or when are we going to have Rosé again? You know, people started asking us those questions, and it... A, finally got to the point where we needed to keep more of our grapes. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't um, necessarily like a break in ties. It was just to the point where we've grown to the point where we were having to keep our fruit now. And they always knew going, growing with us that we were slowly growing too and that we wouldn't be a forever contract. Mm -hmm. But until that point where we were comfortable, they were happy to buy all of our fruit. Um, that's so a good was, feeling though. It was a great feeling. So we always have a backup plan, nice. which was great. Very cool. So what inspired uh, your parents to decide to plant a vineyard? Well, we've always been a big wine family. Um, my mom and dad are both Catholic, and wine is a really integral part of dinner, of going to church on Sunday, of um, kind of our culture. My mom's Cuban, my dad's Irish, so we both come from backgrounds that really valued having a glass of wine at dinner. Sure. Um, it's definitely part of the European lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, so when you come from that background and wine's already a huge part of your life, even outside of agriculture, you just start getting this huge appreciation for it. Um, so when they were in college, my parents, they always tell this funny story of when my dad took my mom on a date and they went to this Italian restaurant and my dad worked in construction in college. So he always had a little bit of cash because he was working in Wonderboard and he would always tell us the story of how he took her to dinner 
and they got this fancy Italian bottle of wine that had the wrapper on it. Uh, you, you know which one I'm talking uh -huh, about, right? Uh -huh. And how you'd drink the bottle of wine and you'd put the candle in it. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So they always tell this, stuff. right? So they always tell us this funny story about, you know, when we first, you know, went on a date to go get wine kind of deal. And so their passion for wine has always been something that they've had together. So when we came up to North Carolina and moved to this farm in 1994, there was nothing here at all. It was covered in kudzu, it was covered in woods. It was not what you would call a reclaimed piece of property. It was just covered in growth. Mm -hmm. So it took us about four years to really start reclaiming the property for it to be useful, for it to not just be overgrown. And once we started clearing these, the land and seeing what it looked like, there was really no other form of agriculture that we could that could lend itself to the land like these hills, like grapes. You can't do a lot of things on hilly surfaces with certain kinds of agriculture, but grapes love hills. They love that inclination. It's good for drainage. And the way that our property sits, all of the hills are really oriented the perfect way for growing grapes. Mm. They're all oriented north to south except for this one plot, so they're it's just so idyllic for growing grapes. And it took us about four years to figure that out. And in the process, my dad, when he was working, he was driving up and down the highways in North Carolina seeing all these grapes going in. You know, mm. you'd, you'd see, you can see Shelton on the, on the way, you know, you can see all these right. wineries driving sure. by. And that was his territory for a long time for work. So finally we called NC State up and they came out, the extension office did all of our samples and NC State was a huge resource for us, and turned out grapes would be great here. So, yeah. we, so we started doing all the research for, for grapes. Um, we started doing what would grow get best in our environment, what would grow best in the hot summers of Polk County, what can hold up to humid, humid summers, what can do well in the soils that we have here. So, and we started landing on the thick-skinned varieties. Okay. So... You can't find Pinot Noir in Polk County. <laughs> Won't ever happen. But we do grow some incredible Petit Verdot. Uh, excellent quality of fruit for the Petit Verdot. The Merlot does awesome. The Cab does pretty well as, as well as the Merlot. Cab Franc does good too. But it all comes back down to how you farm it. And there's a lot of different things that can bring success to a Cabernet Vineyard that one right here in, at Overmountain Vineyards versus right down the street all those different factors come into play as to whether or not you're going to be able to produce high, produce high quality red wine. Absolutely. Or white wine, whichever you're working on. So you mentioned Polk County, so maybe some of our listeners may not be familiar with where Polk County is in North Carolina. So maybe describe a little bit about that and we talk about, I think there's the isothermal belt that's a part of Polk County that helps with some of the growing of, of grapes and other agricultural products in the county. So the isothermal belt, it's a really critical geographical region that is composed of two counties, Polk County, which is where we are, and Rutherford County. And these two counties fall into this isothermal belt. And the isothermal belt has this really great growing season. It's a little longer. You have a lot, um, lot of undulating hills in this area. So you have the foothills that are working in your favor. You've got a huge variety of soil types. You've got a really long growing season. There's some people that can be growing all the way into the end of November before that late frost hits. Oh, wow. I mean, last year we were gardening all the way up until the 
right before Thanksgiving. And then we had a big frost. But I mean, we were fall gardening all the way until the end. Holy cow. And that has a lot to do with these these days that we have. I mean, look at the weather right now. It's, yeah, it's very cool. It's it's not very humid. Mm -hmm. We're in the foothills and that that mount those mountains are really allowing this weather to be this idyllic weather. Now in the summer sometimes we have big droughts. In certain parts of the isothermal belt, you could have big rain events. Some parts you have drought. So there's so much variety within the isothermal belt. It's really amazing. Hmm. Some farms in Polk County can be getting so much rain. Some days I'll call over to Parker Benz and ask them, hey, did you get rain? And they said, yeah. And I said, I didn't. <laughs> and, she'll, and we'll have the same call back and forth, and we're only just a little bit right. apart. Right. Yeah. So the, un the undulating hills of the isothermal belt all the different weather experiences, all the different, all the different variety of the area. It really makes for a great growing season and a long growing season, and one that is great for growing grapes. Well, definitely, I think the results of that clearly seen in the quality of the fruit, the wine that you produce. So, thank you. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite wines, probably of all time in North Carolina, is your 2015 Cab. So that just proves that the quality there's something to be said for that cab too because yeah. one thing that we won't we will not produce a wine a red wine and call it cabernet unless it's worthy of being sure. called cabernet that's why we have the revolutionary red the patriot mm -hmm. red the dominion our red table wine and there's nothing wrong with that no there's nothing wrong with it at all however when you have a good year just one out of like 10. Sure. And you can, seriously, just one out yeah. of all 10 that we've been open, mm -hmm. only one time have we ever released a wine called Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Only one time. Just once. And that has a lot to do with vintage. You know, we can produce red wines here, but not every year is going to be a standout right. wine like that Cabernet. And that's when you really got to start making these blends and start making choices. As much as you want to make Cabernet, you just can't. Yeah. yeah. You have to sit back and think to yourself, is that Merlot going to be enhanced by a little bit of Cab? If I put a little bit of Petit Verdot or a little Cab Franc, is it just going to make it better? And then that's when you have to have some humility and think to yourself, okay, i got to do a blend. As much as you want to do it, you can't. Yeah. You just can't. You can't have varietals when they don't well, stand up to varietals. The great wines of the world, they're blends. They're all blends. So, yeah. But, uh, you so know, the, okay. the Americans and, you know, all yes. of us Americans think you got to have varietal. But yes, that's just, we, we you do. know, we do. and that's going against precedent. So we just have to yeah. continue to try to do as much wine as education as we can sure, yeah. and remind folks that vintage does matter and when you see a red blend that doesn't that doesn't mean less quality it can actually be exactly. the best wine in the lineup absolutely exactly. yeah and that's one of the things that we often say is like we should probably be more accepting of blends and, and expect them here because of the variation in in each vintage because we might I have couldn't one agree year that's more. A you should, we should expect them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. even 2 years ago when we were making wine during 2018, it was the worst year for winemaking in North Carolina ever. And I remember sitting on the crush pad one day thinking to myself, it'll be tough press for any consumer to find a good red wine from 2018. <laughs> I remember saying that. Yeah. You know, we only made four barrels of red wine that year. Four. Holy cow. That's it. That's yeah. not, that's a hundred cases of wine. Thank God we had a good year in 2017 and 2019. Yes. You know, it happens. So speaking of 2019, I know across the state that was pretty good. Uh, how was it over here in this area? It was phenomenal. It was a great year. Um, it was dry. It was really dry. We tried a lot of new techniques in the vineyard that year and we, made some really incredible red wines. 
that year we we hardly made rosé that year because we had just such good quality fruit that we didn't want to even think about rosé. Okay. So the Petit Verdot was epic. The Cabernet was awesome. Our Petit Mansang was came in at such high bricks. Came in, I think I want to say at 29 bricks. Oh, wow. Highest yeah. is at, highest we'd ever seen it. Yeah. You know, just... <laughs> So what's the alcohol content on that? That we actually made a sweet wine. With okay. That. okay. So we left a little bit of residual sugar sure. and fortifies. We made a, a little port. Oh, very yeah. cool. Um, yeah. It's when you get that when you have that juice coming in with such high sugar and such high bricks, it's hard to not. Yeah, because then it's, it's then hard you have to, to worry not do something a little too hot. If you yeah, and you, I don't. I, and you know, I would hate to. I would hate to not take advantage of those bricks and make something exotic especially with the two ensign it's a very exotic grape it is yes it takes really well to so many different yeast strains it's just very exotic so it's it's when you have that sugar content it like gives you a lot of more resources to do you can make a port you can make a sweet high alcohol wine sure you can kind of make like a sauterne style depending on the the quality of the fruit at harvest so there's on harvest day, there's just so many decisions. You just have to figure out what are you gonna do, what's your plan, and let's make the best wine we can. And you know, there's days when we'll go into it thinking, we're gonna make Cabernet Sauvignon today. And then halfway through, we're like, you know, this fruit didn't look as good as we wanted it to, let's make some epic rosé, or or vice versa. We're thinking we're gonna make rosé, but the fruit comes in and it looks so good, and we'll just stop everything we're doing and start making red wine. All right. So part of, the fun of being in the winery is being so flexible and being able to on a dime change your decision and not being stuck in i'm gonna make this recipe you know what i mean it's so different every season but that and that's the advantage of being a small boutique winery and having the, that full control you can make those decisions on yes a dime. absolutely and that's what's so fun about being a small production winery we don't have any intention of growing our production at all we want to stay this size um I don't, I don't want to make more wine than what we're making now, um, because when we make a small amount of wine, it's so intimate and like what you're saying. Sure. We have so much create creativity when it comes to small batch wines, and the quality is just so much higher when mm -hmm. you're doing smaller fermentations. So let's talk about quality. You mentioned quality. So I know one of the investments that you've made in quality here at Over Mountain is with the sorting table, but I'm sure there are others. So maybe talk about. Um, what quality means at Ever Mountain and, and the investments that have been made to ensure that that quality exists? So quality is the most important thing that we focus on. Um, as far as wine quality goes, you mentioned the sorting table. Um, we, it's, it's not just the sorting table. It's the sorting table, it's the sorting, um, it's the elevator, it's the destemmer, but it's not just the pieces of equipment, it's the, it's the people. Um, right, yeah. we're, we're not just sorting the grapes trying to you know, just get rid of the good and the bad. That's the whole purpose, but we're trying to make the best possible wine so that when you open it, you have an experience. You have a wild experience. This is great North Carolina wine. I hate to say it, but there's a lot of times when you don't hear that about North Carolina wines. And what we're striving to do here is to make the best possible wine that we can so that it reflects our state as the best wine that we can make. You know, I don't wanna make wine out of a grape that's not going to reflect excellent quality because then that doesn't give North Carolina wine a good representation. Right. Our whole goal is to elevate North Carolina wine. And by sorting your grapes at harvest, 
is just one way that you can really elevate North Carolina red wines. And that's one place I think North Carolina has so much potential in producing excellent white wines. Excellent white wines. Mm -hmm. Hands down. I know you agree with me on that. Red wines, we have a lot of work to do. A lot. And a lot of that has to do with what we're doing at Harvest, at Crush, at the Crush Pad during harvest. And that's sorting out the grapes. It's picking off any unripe stems, any, any unripe berries, any, I hate to say it, any bugs. You got to get those out of there. You, gotta, you can't be making wine with stink bugs in it. You can't be making wine with leaves in it. You can't be making wine with unripe green stems in it because you'll start getting these vegetal off-putting red wines. And if you guys could see that what we sort out of these grapes, you would be appalled. I am every time we do it. Every season, I'm like, oh my goodness. I cannot believe the rest of that stays in North Carolina wine. It, I'm beside myself every time. I take pictures every season because I'm just so stunned at, at the quality. Because when we finish, when we finish picking out every single unripe berry, every single unripe stem, they look like perfect... They look like blueberries. We have guests that, you know, we, when we do our harvest, we, we're open to the public. So folks can actually see the harvest. They can come down, ask questions, see what's going on, see the press, see the press, um, see what's going on. You know, everything that's happening on the crush pad, the destemming, the sorting, everything. You can go and see it. And we want people to be able to see it. Yeah. Because it's educational. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like the epitome of a farm tour. Yeah. So when we're done, you know, guests are standing around and I'll never forget it. Sounds like Seamus is on something. It does. Sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But I'll never forget, I guess, this past year, she asked me, are those blueberries? Are y'all making blueberry wine? And I said, no, ma'am, that's Merlot. <laughs> and she couldn't believe it that that's what it looked like. Yeah. You know, because when you go to the grocery store, you have this misconception of what sure, grapes look like. Yeah. Massive, giant cloves. You think they're big. You know, yeah. you think that they're, you just have this view in your mind, and that's just not how it is. So when, when we're sorting the grapes and we're picking out every last piece of mog matter other than grapes every last bit of it the quality of the red wine is just so so good mm -hmm. i mean the amount of fruit that we smell in our wines the blackberry the dark cherry all of those profiles you wouldn't be able to smell them if you were keeping all those vegetal notes in the wine you just wouldn't and the amount of shot berries that we pull out is unprecedented i've never seen so many and when you start thinking about shot berries and unripe berries and all that acid, you know, how many times do you drink a North Carolina red wine and it's so tart? It's so tart. It's not a Pinot Noir. And it's, it says it's a Merlot or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of, I think that for the entire industry of North Carolina, the quality, not only does it start in the vineyard with vineyard management, but it's, it's so critical right there on the crush pad before you ever even start making wine sorting the grapes makes a huge difference in the field and on the crush pad and in the winery so now as you were going through all of that it sounded like there was a lot of extra work sorting in the field sorting before you get there in the crush pad i imagine though that has to pay off tenfold when you're in the winery itself so what are you seeing with all the extra labor is that increasing the quality or making it easier for you to make the wine i wouldn't say that it makes it easier to make the wine um however we can tell a huge difference in the color of the grapes, the color of the wine. Uh, when, when you're pulling out unripe berries, unripe berries don't have the robust color in the skins that a perfectly ripe berry does. Right. So when you add a berry with juice to a whole vat that's not ripe enough, 
you're diluting the concentration of the good color and of the good uh, and of the good uh, sugar content and of all of the tannins that are in the skins. Mm. You know, so when you when you don't sort and a lot of that stuff still makes it in there, you see a, a decline in the overall color of a red wine. The aroma during fermentation can be a little bit. It's different. It doesn't have that fruity nose. It's it's got this kind of vegetal aromas it's a little bit green mm-hmm. i know when you think of a color you don't think of a smell but when you talk about wine and you think about the color the, the green color you think of methoxypyrazines you're thinking green peppers yes. you know right. so when you talk about wine you can think about an aroma with color and when you smell that green aroma you can smell it in the wine when you're fermenting if it's not that great quality you can tell a difference um so it, I wouldn't say that it makes the winemaking portion of the production easier, mm-hmm. but there is a total difference in quality. Okay. Total difference in quality. Um, I'll never forget the vintages 2013 from 2014, because 2014 was the year that we started sorting. And when we released that vintage, the proof was in the pudding. The wine was fantastic. Our guests couldn't couldn't get enough of it it was an overall huge change in in quality i mean we went from this level up to that level you know it was just fully elevated yeah and it all came down to taking out the unripe berries who would have thought something so minute right Right. Is the most important thing. I mean, yeah. we, we we definitely noticed. I mean, the wines are always good here, but they definitely have, in the last several years, have definitely t- t- taken a step has, up. And that has everything to do with the, the way that we're sorting the fruit. Um, right. And, you know, we're not just sorting on the crush pad. We go through and we do a, we'll go through the vineyard and we'll drop fruit very early in the season. We'll drop fruit, we'll thin out clusters, we'll thin out shoots, because we're looking for balance. We're not looking for a high... You know, we're not looking for a high quantity of fruit. We're looking for quality. So when you're not looking for quantity, you can drop a lot of fruit and make sure that the fruit that you do have gets as ripe as possible. And that way, the fruit that you do have is the best quality fruit. You know, you can't make high-quality wine with low-quality grapes. You know, it starts out in the vineyard. If you're not if you're not doing everything you can to get those grapes perfectly ripe, you really are starting kind of... Yeah. With it at a, with a diff yeah with a handicap yeah. with a disadvantage right. in the winery yeah so yes the sorting is huge and so important but it really all starts out in the vineyard um, with the vineyard team and how much sorting you're doing and how much how you're pruning and how you're managing your trellises and your everything you know it's it's a dead on science to get that fruit ripe and then you know then we're sorting so it's there are so many factors to get the perfect wine so many factors it's a lot of work yeah but the results pay off absolutely there's so many times where i have a young couple that comes into the tasting room that says it's our dream to own a winery i said (laughs) well come and work the harvest one time you know because people have no concept of of how it is you know grapes don't just grow like that yeah you know they don't just grow beautifully straight in the trellis they're jungle creatures if they aren't tended they look just so wild and so gnarly and so there is this misconception and this romanticized view of being a winemaker but really we're just glorified farmers that's what we do (laughs) we farm grapes 
to the best of our ability and then turn those grapes into wine. There's, you know, it's, and we're not the ones doing it. It's the yeast. So there's a lot of this, there's this big misconception about the lifestyle of a winemaker, but really you're just a farmer and that really comes down to it. We're just farmers. Yeah, it all starts grapes. in the vineyard. You know, yeah. it, it all starts in the vineyard. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned 2019 was a great year, but but I've noticed with some of your Instagram posts, it sounds like you're one of the few places in North Carolina that actually had a pretty good 2020. So talk about the vintage that was 2020. Yeah, so 2020, what a year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so 2020 started off with a bang. You know, COVID hit. We had to close our tasting room for 10 weeks, and what seemed like a nightmare at the time was a blessing in disguise for us because we were able to turn all of our productivity towards the vineyards. Nice. Um, We were close to the public. Nobody was here. It was just us, and work still had to be done. So we got in the vineyards, rebuilt a whole lot of trellises, got our vines looking awesome, um, and did everything that we could to overcome it. And there were a lot of people that were affected with some late spring frosts right. this year. Thankfully, we weren't one of those wineries. Um, I know Hendersonville got hit really hard on those higher elevations. Um, and, you know, that can really change an entire growing season for a winery. Sure. You know, if yeah. you get hit with frost and you already have flowering and fruit set, you're done for. Yeah. Talk about a lost vintage. So we weren't in that in that position. We did we fared really well. Um, all, of our, all of our grapes were untouched from frost. We did have... We did experience, though, that cool, cool spring, that late spring cool Mm -hmm. spell. And we think that that really affected ripeness. So we didn't start harvesting our grapes until almost the end of August, which is record late start. Um, So that was different for us. But I would say that we fared really, really well. We had good tonnage. We got some really great quality Chardonnay from our neighbors. Um, we, we got some really awesome Merlot from our farm. We made some awesome rosé, and we also made some good Merlot red wine. Um, as far as the Cabernet goes, the Cabernet came in some of the best Cabernet that we've ever had. Um, I didn't expect it to be because we had a little bit of a rain and hurricane event two weeks prior. So the sugars weren't necessarily great, but the color was incredible. So we were able to get some really good color red wines. Uh, made some really, really unique rosés, a couple different varieties of rosé. We were um, so we were we were pretty blessed, considering how bad of a year it was for everybody. I know a lot of the, a lot of the North Carolina wineries still had fruit on the vine with yeah. these all these hurricanes right. that came in, yeah. and we did everything in our power to not have fruit on our vines. So we harvested everything, and were able to get it all done before those harvests or before those um, spell those spells of hurricane rains came in. So I really feel for those winemakers that had to wait to receive their fruit after all that rain. Yeah. Um, I hope that some of those other wineries were able to overcome that because that is just devastating. I mean, devastating to have all of your fruit hanging on the vine and then get six inches of rain. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it wasn't me. Yeah, and a lot of them up in the, the Yadkin Valley area, too, with the, the, the Easter frost, the Mother's Day frost area that we had, it was terrible. If they had any fruit at all, it's it gone. was still, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have some friends up in the mountains that were really affected too and yeah we had some uh one vendor tell us that they basically restarted after mother's day and they weren't sure that all the red fruit was going to get as ripe as they needed to yeah. because of that late start yeah i mean um, it's impossible so. it honestly is impossible if you have that late start and you're trying to get your bricks up yeah 
unless you're unless you're having a hot day every single day, which we know right. isn't going to happen in yeah, Western right. North Carolina. Right. You're going to have clouds. It's not going to happen. You're going to be making a lot of rosé. Yeah. Right. yeah. Which is, there's nothing wrong with rosé. It's exactly. so popular right now. It's one of our most popular wines. So, you know, you, you can't fret over a bad vintage. Yeah. As a winemaker, you can't fret. You just got to remember there are adjustments that can be made. We can make rosé. You don't always have to make red wine. That was one of the best pieces of advice that we got from Bernard and Sharon Fenchek up at Biltmore one year, and we were so worried about the rain. We, you know, we were we were growers then at the time, and we were just so worried that we weren't going to get our sugar up. Yeah. And Bernard says to us in his deep French accent, <laughs> "Don't worry, it'll be fantastic." And, you know, he made fantastic rosé. He didn't care about the rain. He said, "Don't worry about it. You can still make great wine." Yeah. I mean, look at Champagne. Mm-hmm. Look, exactly. at, look at Champagne, France. They, all that's non-vintage. Yeah. None of it's got a year on it. But it's all really good. Yeah. Yep. So you have to just keep it all in perspective, especially exactly. in a year like 2020. Oh, yeah. So you mentioned COVID. So let's talk a little bit about the impacts of COVID on business and how you're reacting to uh, that and the safety protocols that you have in place. Definitely. So COVID-19 has basically made all of small businesses have to become very creative. Mm-hmm. So when we first were closed down, we started doing curbside pickup, which... We were so amazed and grateful for the outpouring of support for folks from all over the place. I mean, we were having folks from all over come over to do curbside pickup, which yeah. was really cool. Um, and there were times when folks that driven pretty far had come to do curbside and they would say, is it okay if I know you're closed, can we have our picnic out on the grounds? Of course you can, we're not open, I don't see you here, go and have a <laughs> glass of wine. So there were a few times where there were some guests that had special occasions that were able to come out and sure. kind of privately experience. But we decided that when we opened back up, we weren't going to be able to open up to the public. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, due to the nature of our business and the nature of wine tasting and the wine culture in general, people love gathering. Right. The whole purpose of enjoying a bottle of wine is to gather with your friends. Yes. Well, COVID doesn't want you to gather. Exactly. <laughs> so there's two complications there. So we decided that we were going to open up by reservation only mm-hmm. um, and really still be able to create the fun, friendly, safe environment at Over Mountain, but just limit it so that folks feel comfortable. Um, nothing's worse than going somewhere and seeing a huge crowd and then getting uncomfortable because you're worried that you're going to get sick. Yeah. So one thing that we're doing is we're taking temperatures of everybody that comes in. So we'll take their temperature um, before they arrive. And all of our staff's wearing masks, of course, hand sanitizers, abundant and everywhere. But we're limiting the number of guests that we can have in a certain hour. Uh, We're doing that so that the grounds stay safe. Um, Not that the grounds aren't, not that they're unsafe, but with the nature of social distancing, we want folks to feel comfortable with the number of people that are on the property at all times. So we try to limit how many people can come during during a certain given hour we're not allowing parties larger than eight. So we're really limiting what we used to do right now. Um, as you guys remember, we used to be known for our table side tasting. Yeah. That's kind of one thing that kind of has set us apart over the last 10 years is how we do our wine tasting. Absolutely. We pour in Regal glassware. We bring the wine tasting to the table. We educate you about each of the varietals, how we do it. You know, it, there's a, it's a full experience. Um, but because of COVID, we can't offer that right now. It's not safe for our staff or for our guests to interact that many times 
with each other. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just we don't feel like it's a wise decision. So right now we're not offering our traditional wine tasting. We're offering um, folks to sit down at their table. We'll bring you a sample of whatever you'd like to try, a couple samples, and you, you can enjoy wine by the glass and by the bottle. But we don't feel like it's fair to charge for a wine tasting if we can't offer the traditional experience that we're known for. So we're not doing wine tastings right now. Um, we're still waiting until we feel that it's appropriate to do that. Um, but right now we're open by reservation. You can get onto our website and make reservations. You can uh, give us a call or you can send us an email and we'll get back to you within 24 hours, 48 hours and get you guys fixed up with reservations. So we're accommodating as many people as we feel it is safe to. Um, and we think that going into the new year, we're going to continue to stick with reservations, but there'll be more of them um, available as we feel that it's safe to do so. And I do have to say, it's a, it's a great format to do because it gives people that reassurance that you are looking out for everyone's safety and you're limiting the number of people, which is very important. So. Yeah, and you know, one thing that we want to continue even after COVID ends is the reservation system because, you know, when, when you're going out with four friends and you're intending to go to have a nice experience, we want to be able to provide that to you and know that we want you to know that when you come to the winery, you have a table reserved and that you're, you're going to be able to have a nice, comfortable experience. Yeah. Um, I remember before COVID, two o'clock was the, the, the special hour when everybody <laughs> and their brother wanted to come out. Sure. And I get yeah. that. It's after lunch. Everybody's kind of going and move, doing their thing. But now circumstances have, had, circumstances have changed and it's just not safe to, to do that. So now we're just going to be min- mingling in a different way. So like I mentioned earlier, it's just forced us to be creative. We still want to be able to accommodate all of our guests. We're just going to have to do it a slightly different way. Um, and and we're just thinking that's the best way to do it right now. Um, unfortunately, there's a high demand and a small supply. So sometimes you might not be able to get the reservation that you prefer on that day, but we'll do our very best to accommodate you on another weekend um, or another another day. Perfect. And it's outdoors? But yes. there's shelter, all so di- if it all rains, outdoors. you're still okay. All outdoors, so. nothing's inside. Um, one really exciting new addition that'll be coming um, this winter is we're going to enclose our outer space with some um, kind of like some awning, so it's still outdoor, oh, cool. um, but it'll be able to stay warm. Nice. So we're going to be able to warm that big front patio this winter, which will be good. Very cool. So I'm excited to see that upgrade. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be important for wineries going into the winter season to be exactly. able to still have outdoor space but keep people warm. That's um, going to be a huge challenge for all, all wineries, all restaurants. We're all going to kind of experience this, what do we do now? Yeah. It's cold. Yeah. So we're trying to figure that one out. Um, as you guys know, we do have the fire pits, and we, you know, we, we used to be able to provide blankets to people, but we don't want to be like the settlers and get everyone <laughs> sick with blankets, so we're not doing blankets anymore. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, but and bring your own blanket. Bring your own blanket. Sit by the fire um, and enjoy a nice glass of red wine. Nice. Well, on that note, we're actually at a really good spot to take a quick little break for our education segment. But when we come back, how about we talk a little bit about the current wines that you have, and maybe some of the wines that you've made yeah, in recent past that have really kind of struck home with you. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having us. So, what's on our topic for today? Today we are going to scratch the surface of wine and food pairing. Ooh, the best part. Yeah, and we will preface this by saying that this is not our strong suit. Um, We are strongly in the camp of 
eat what you want, drink what you want. If it goes together, great. If it doesn't, eh, maybe do them one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong Try with that. Again next. We've learned, we've picked up a few tips along the way that are just helpful guidelines for thinking about wine and food pairings. Uh, one of those is that way back in the day, people didn't even think about what wine went with what food because the wine of the region naturally just went with the food of the region as well. Um, so Italian food in Chianti, Bordeaux and lamb. So now we have so many options at our fingertips. You know, if we're at the grocery store or even out of the North Carolina winery or wherever, to try to really think about, well, what's actually going to go well with this when I get home? And it can be a little overwhelming. So there are a few little guidelines and tips and tricks. Yeah, and I think with that, it's if you're ever questioning it, you know, if you're having Italian food, go for an Italian wine. Simple things like that for different types of food. So just, you know, some overarching guidelines. Delicate dishes are going to do best with delicate wine um, and bold dishes with bold wine. When in doubt, match your food style to the wine style. Yeah. Red meat is going to go well with red wine. Likewise, white meat pairs well with white wine. And that's not a hard and fast rule. None of these are. It all goes down to your personal taste. But. Yeah, and a lot of these guidelines are just like if you have no idea whatsoever, like what a certain wine tastes like or if it would even go with the food, then mm -hmm. these may be helpful. But if you drink wine all the time and you know what something tastes like, then you're going to be able to decide for yourself if it goes with what you're eating. Right. Yeah, that's really good advice. You know, keep sampling wine so you know what it might go with. Exactly. One of our favorites here at the Wine Mouths would be like salty, spicy stuff. With a sweeter wine, so like Thai food with Riesling or a bubbly. That's one of our go-tos. And we're not normally sweet wine drinkers. When we when we came across that pairing individually or collectively, it was kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Like, do I, I like sweet wine? Right. I don't, do I even know who so I am? So if you have, you know, a box of sweet wine you've accumulated in your closet <laughs> that you can't get rid of, order a lot of Thai takeout. Yeah, and it'll be good. Um, and we get asked a lot about wine and chocolate or desserts and wine and this isn't really our favorite either yeah we just say no but, yeah but in general the kind of the guideline is that the wine should be sweeter than the dessert that it's paired with right so that means pretty sweet sometimes yeah that wine but if you hit on a good pairing then it balances itself out and a lot of that actually has to do with the flavors of the, the food Obviously, I say it out loud and now it's like the doy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so thinking about matching the acid levels in your food and your wine. If the wine has less acid than the food that you're pairing it with, it's going to taste a little flat. Your wine should actually have more acidity to it than the food so that it can cut through that. Yeah. A lot of times the food is going to win out in the taste. So you need your wine to be more than your food because mm -hmm. the food taste is going to be kind of more what's in your mouth and your palate. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're onto something there with the acidity because I think, you know, with, with food, a lot of times it's the fat that carries the flavor in food and the acidity really helps to kind of, you know, slice that fat, like cut mm -hmm. right through it. And it kind of does some interesting things with the, with the flavor compounds that, that go with it. Right. Cause you want your food and your wine to complement each other and not compete. Exactly. That's where the magic happens. When they yeah. complement and it, and it works really well. And so thinking about those pairings, you know, the sweet and the salty or the spicy and the sweet, um, um, getting that balance. Back to the, the fat discussion, if you have 
that, you might want to look for something with more tannins to help balance out the fat. Sure. And just like with that acidity, you kind of cut through that fat flavor or mouthfeel that you get from your food um, with the, the tannins, a more tannic wine. So besides the sweet wine and Thai, any other favorite pairings that you've discovered? We were talking about this before we started recording, um, Jesse and I, and one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is when I studied abroad a bajillion years ago, um, in Barcelona, there was this little cava bar, and for like three euro, you could get a whole bottle of cava, like nice, decent, good cava, and a little sandwich, and it was just like meat and bread, and that was an amazing pairing. A lot of elements of that, like just the fat from the meat, you know, it's like a cured hormone. Um, so the fat and the, the bitterness, and then just the bubbly effervescence of the kava and acidity, which I probably didn't know at the time or truly appreciate, but <laughs> that, you know, is something I love to replicate. Yeah. And something with that too, that's not necessarily a wine and food pairing, but kind of just a pairing as far as the experience, like stuff is going to taste better if you're with good company or right. you're in a cool place sure. or, um, so a lot of the things that stick out in our minds in everybody's minds is mm -hmm. going to be, you know, involved around who you're with and where you are and stuff too. Right. But my advice in general is if you're unsure, bubbly can go with about anything. And so can Rose. Yeah. Um, so those are two good, good thing rules of thumb to keep in mind. So, um, one of my favorites is fried chicken with bubbly. I think that's a great pairing together. That's a nice um, high and low. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, you can get just some Southern fried chicken and, and pair it yeah. nicely with the, a nice sparkling. Um, and, the, and then rosé with any kind of salad is also a great pairing to be a little on the healthier side. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, some good options. And, you know, this summer we've really been hitting on uh, sparkling wine with grilled oysters. Oh yes, like a lemon, parsley, butter, garlic sauce. Oh, it, it's it's a really good pairing, and it's it's a perfect. That's what they do in quarantine, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, yeah, hey, we don't need to share with anyone. It's just it's just for the two of us. <laughs> for us now, what do, do you guys pair um, wine with popcorn ever? So again, I think sparkling wine and it uh, goes really well with yeah. popcorn. Um, that would be one of my favorite pairings with with, and it, of course, it depends on what the flavor of the popcorn is. Um, right. If we're just talking butter, salt, pepper, then yeah, that's bubbly. Or even with something with like Parmesan, uh, you know, with Ooh, garlic, yeah. um, I think that goes really well with, with bubbly as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That sounds good. We make this um, hearty popcorn, which is like popcorn drenched in, well, maybe drenched is a strong word, covered, <laughs> covered in white chocolate with sprinkles. Ooh. And that does really well with sparkling or rosé, actually, sound, because it's the sweet and the salty. Yeah. I can see that. And then like the little crunchies of the sprinkles. I think white chocolate in general, now that you mention it, would go nicely with rosé because yes. the two of them, I mean, you know, pink yeah. and white, of course, is like, you know, a Valentine's Day, whatever, but it, it, it goes, I think the flavor components work out well together. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we're not, I'm not necessarily a big white chocolate fan normally, but just something about it with the salty popcorn, mm -hmm. I don't know, it works yeah. magical. Get all the flavors in there, nice umami. <laughs> yes. Well, do you guys have any other go-to favorite pairings? So probably one of our absolute favorites and, and folks who have been around us and listened to us uh, 
very often have probably heard this recommendation, um, is, is a soft cheddar, um, something like it's not local, unfortunately, but it's Yancey's Fancies. It is East Coast, so from the Finger Lakes. Uh, take a slice of the cheese, put a little bit of fig spread on that, and have that with a stainless Chardonnay. It's a perfect pairing. Um, the the, the apple kind of notes from the Chardonnay typically play very nicely with the, the fat and the cheese. You've got the, the acid in the wine and the fat and the cheese, and then you've got the, the fig and the apple going really well together. Um, so that's kind of a, a magical kind of easy thing that works with pretty much any stainless Chardonnay you can find. Um, that's one of our, our favorites together. Yeah. We're having a picnic outdoors. Uh, that'll be one of the items for sure. Uh, or, or even on a cheese board. It's just like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll have that yeah. for sure. That sounds delightful. And then we do like our Oak Chardonnay. So anything that has like a cream sauce, um, I would say that that a cream sauce with some sort of, my preference would be to have some sort of either vegetables or, or, or uh, white meat or fish. Mm. Um, I'm one of those people that, that I, I think you need to have with red meat, you need to have red wine and with fish, mm-hmm. you need to have white wine, but certain fishes you can get away with like salmon and tuna. You can get away with a red wine with those, but, but, but an Oak Chardonnay with something, some sort of cream sauce right. um, is to me is a, is a fantastic pairing. That sounds great. So what, so what a couple of uh, things that uh, come to mind are things that are difficult to pair uh, so asparagus is, is kind of a classic that people say it's really hard to pair um, wine with asparagus. Have either of you tried to pair wine with asparagus? And if so, what did you, what was your, the outcome? Of- I can't say that I have. But- yeah, I'll, I'll say that I don't know that I've tried to pair it necessarily, yeah. but we eat asparagus a lot. And I always drink wine with dinner, so it probably goes with a box of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, so I was gonna say, I was gonna say, if I had to pick pick a a wine to go with asparagus, I'd pick Sauvignon Blanc. Um, Certainly, if you're doing that, and like if you're having an asparagus quiche, um, a Sauv Blanc would probably be a good choice with that uh, as well. But yeah, that's Brussels sprouts is another one that's a little difficult. Yeah, Um, but you're usually having that with something else, so you're not just probably having right. so right. whatever your main whatever your main dish is that's what you should use for your wine pairing if you're if you're trying to do that um, unless you're having a tasting and trying to really <laughs> go all out but um, I could see have something herbaceous you know like a, an herby wine like a green wine green flavor wise I could see Pinot Gris yeah yeah, oh. yeah. and with like a hollandaise sauce I mean one it's well, hollandaise sauce yeah. so you can't go wrong yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that helps I did have another question that Finally came back to me. Uh, do you guys ever, do you guys cook with wine much? Well, you know, that's very interesting. So sometimes. It just means an extra glass with dinner. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> you don't usually need the whole bottle. There, there are some things that. define what I meant cooking with wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. So, so, I mean, sometimes I will, if the, if the recipe calls for, you know, like poaching or something in the wine, then yeah, I'll do that. If it calls for like, you know, like half a cup or a couple tablespoons of wine in the recipe, like after deglazing or after sauteing, I usually won't actually. I'll, I'll do like a little bit of white vinegar or some wine vinegar and then use that instead. Um, I, there's something about the, the, the taste of it. It, it. it is good. I mean, if, if we have the wine open and decanted, maybe I'll put a splash in there to help kind of yeah. tie the food together. But 
Otherwise, eh, not so much. Just the poaching. No boat wasting. I know. I feel like it's a little bit too precious. <laughs> um, the only time I will is with like a pasta sauce if I'm making it from scratch. Yeah, I think pasta helps, you know, that helps integrate it for sure. Yeah, I'm good old plug. Well, all of this talk of food and wine is making me hungry and thirsty. So anything else uh, you guys would like to add before uh, I drop off and go eat? Well, what would you pair with um, white chicken chili? Because that's what we're about to dig into. <laughs> I definitely would not pick something that's oat, I don't think. I yeah. think I would go with, I would probably tr- maybe a stainless Chardonnay or maybe even Riesling, depending on the spice level. And I would maybe say like a Roussan or like a white blend even. I think any of those yeah, would go. Maybe sure. even a Petit Mansang would go well with it. Ooh, yeah, that oh, could be that's option. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Next level, we'll get back to you and let you know how it turned out. Yes, please do. So, you know, leaving everyone hungry for more information. Thank you once again. (laughs) And Jesse and Jessica, we'll talk to you again next time. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Wine Mouths. That's W I N E M O U T H S. And now, back to the show. So the Chardonnay is one of my favorite wines that we make. Um, I'm not even a Chardonnay lover. I'm typically going for something a little different. But if I had to drink Chardonnay, that would be the one. That Chardonnay is one of the best Chardonnays to me. It's stainless. I'm biased. I make the wine, but it is one of the best Chardonnays, partly because it's stainless steel aged. It's so refreshing and crisp. It has great acid. And it's grown right here in North Carolina. It's one of the best things about it. This is a North Carolina Chardonnay. That drinks like a French Chardonnay. It's it's like a Chablis. Yeah, I was gonna say it really is. I mean, we were sipping on it during the, most of this interview, and it is it is really good. And then of course we have our rosé. Most of the folks that drink Over Mountain wines know that we're constantly bringing out a new rosé, constantly. So we make Merlot rosés, Cabernet rosés. We've done Petit Verdot rosés. Believe it or not, um, that's crazy to think, but we've done that too. We've done a Barbera rosé, uh, so we've done all different kinds of rosé. But this year, for um, 2020, we've been releasing our 2019 Cabernet and Merlot rosés. So right now, we're offering this really beautiful rosé. It features an incredible piece of artwork on it. I can't remember if it's Vietnamese or Thai. Let me text my brother. He'll text me back pretty quick. But one of the things that's cool about all of our wines is that we try to incorporate new artwork onto all of our labels. Um, so as a family, we collect artwork everywhere we go. So whether or not we're traveling in South America or the islands or California or wherever we travel, we're looking for some new piece of art. So we feature everything from North Carolina artists on our labels to Cuban artists to Spanish artists. Um, We've even featured California artists um, from Northern California, Gabe Wise. And part of the artwork is kind of like our it's special to, to our family. So it's not just random things that we think, oh, that would look good on label. You know, it's pieces of art that speak to us, things that we enjoy, that we find beauty in, um, that we want to bring to our guests. So a lot of our um, pieces of art that we feature in our tasting room even are actually from Cuba. So we've, um, we've actually collected a large amount of artwork that's just in a portfolio for labels. Stuff that hasn't even come out yet, wow. but that will. And 
we're constantly featuring new wines in that light. So our rosés constantly have new, new wines, new labels. We're always trying to bring something a little bit beautiful to the lineup, whether or not it's the taste of the wine or the new artwork. So right now, our Muscadine wine, uh, most of the folks that have had our Muscadine know it's not a sweet Muscadine wine. We're known for making dry Muscadine wine, and we feature this beautiful, beautiful label on that Muscadine. And it's also a piece from Cuba. Um, our Petit Verdot label that has also become pretty, pretty famous is a North Carolina artist, uh, Catherine Pierce. She was a student at Wake Tech, and she reached out to us and she produced that one for us. And then one of my favorite artists that we feature is Gigi Dover. She's from Charlotte and she's done commissioned pieces and then some other pieces for us as well. So we're constantly featuring new artwork on our labels. Um, but right now the lineup, it includes our Chardonnay, uh, our Rosé, which features a really cool piece of artwork from, um, from Asia. And then we also have our Patriot Red, which is currently a blend of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And then our Petit Verdot is currently available. And then the Muscadine, dry Muscadine as always, it should, it should be around through the holidays, so definitely don't wait around for that. And then right now at the winery, we're always offering our seasonal sangria. So that's something that we don't bottle it, but it's always available to enjoy on premise. Very cool. So no, you mentioned the Muscadine, and I have to say, people always think of Muscadine in Eastern North Carolina, and we do say, hey, you can grow it out in the Western part of the state. And Overmountain does a really good dry muscadine. So we're always, you know, kind of a supporter of it. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah. So one thing we haven't touched on, uh, the name Overmountain. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about the history behind that name. Something that's not talked about enough. Yeah. We're actually named after the Overmountain men. They're a militia from the 18th, or excuse me, the 1780s. And they were pivotal in the forming of our nation. So they were a group of people kind of like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett that were pioneers in the western part of North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee. And this group of men and women, the women are almost always forgotten during conversations about the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and things like that, but the women were a very pivotal part of the Overmountain Men. And they actually were fighting against the British. So they actually came through this property on, um, on their way to fight at the Battle of Kings Mountain. So they were actually so important that they they won the King's Mountain battle and it was the most pivotal victory in the Southern campaign of the Revolutionary War and a lot of people don't remember that piece of history sometimes it's left out of history books but if it weren't for the Overmountain men catching uh, Ferguson at at that particular battle we wouldn't have caught Cornwallis at Yorktown so there's a lot of pieces that people don't realize about this little area of North Carolina that was that has a lot of Revolutionary War history um, and when we were in the process of figuring out what we wanted to be called and what we were going to be named and what was our vineyard going to be, we were trying to figure out what we would do. Would we go with our Latin heritage or would we go with the history? And we were worried that if we went with the Latin heritage that no one would be able to pronounce our farm. So we decided we'd go with the history. So, and they were both very closely linked. We, were, we wanted to go with Loma Linda, which was Pretty Hill in Spanish, okay. huh. but instead we went with Over Mountain. So they were very similar, but different origins. So nice. Over Mountain, um, Over Mountain Vineyards, started in 2008, opened to the public in 2010, and we were actually certified by the Department of Interior as a section of the National Historic Trail, um, as part of that uh, start. And so we're actually a certified segment of the trail, and we're a historical 
uh, historical point on the trail. Very so cool. it's definitely something that we like to celebrate. Each year we try to have our Patriot Red and our Revolutionary Reds out as our commemorative bottles to the Overmountain Men, try to keep that history alive. And then of course sometimes we have the Kings Mountain Rosé, which folks remember as being that really faint, pale mm-hmm. Merlot Rosé. Um, sometimes we don't release that in a year. It just depends on the year if we have that particular release. But we try to keep the, those wines in the lineup so that it gives us an opportunity to tell people about the history and why we're naming wines Patriot Red and Revolutionary Red and things like that and why we have the horse. You know, the horse. Right, yeah. A lot of people always ask, well, do you guys have horses? No, we don't have horses. But the Overmountain men, they rode on horseback. And the Patriot Red and our logo, it features that Paul Revere-esque kind of rider. So we try to celebrate the horse as well because the horse as well as the Overmountain men were pivotal um, in that story. So the horse is a big part of our story as well. But the Overmountain men, if it wouldn't have been for them, we wouldn't be Americans as we know it. So it's a very historical and, and neat story to be a part of for sure. Absolutely. And now you even can tie the horse in maybe to the Tryon Equestrian Center. Which it works out really, really well. <laughs> so maybe talk about the Equestrian Center and how does that impact business here? At yeah, so the Tryon area has been known for its equestrian community for years and years and years, even prior to the International Equestrian Center coming here. Uh, Fence for years has been here, and Steeplechase has been here. You know, So this area is rich, 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 rich with horse history. The International Equestrian Center coming here has just really enhanced that even more. So we have folks coming from all over the country to event at the International Equestrian Center. Um, we've got folks that come from as close as Aiken. You know, so we're seeing people from all over the United States coming to this place to event their their horses. And they're coming to the winery. A lot of these people also enjoy enjoy wine quite a bit. So it's been really great for us. It also brings in, prior to COVID, you know, there was so many different kinds of events there, Saturday Night Lights, um, eventing, polo, so many things that the general public had never been exposed to. So it's also offered not just a great destination for people to come and enjoy, it's something new, something that none of us have really ever experienced because it's a different sector of life. Yeah. So it's been a great, great addition to our county. they're big supporters of our business. We've actually partnered with them on several different events. And um, they actually use our property for certain equestrian events as well. So we were part of the World Equestrian Games right. back in yeah. 2018. And they actually used part of our farm uh, for the endurance track. And they had part oh, wow. of the track actually go through our farm. We had a couple of um, spectator events for our guests. And it was it's really a great, great thing. Well, that's exciting. Definitely. So. Let's talk a little bit about the growth over the years. So you have mentioned before, like the growth in quality and kind of elevating between the 13 and 14 vintages. But, you know, we're sitting here under this nice little awning gazebo pavilion that when we first came here was not here. So talk to us about some of the growth of the actual property itself. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I actually have a totally different perspective on it than um, a lot of people because I actually got to watch it grow, aside from being a part of it. So when I went to college in 2009, the following March is when my parents opened our business. So there were many times during college where I'd try to call on my parents on their cell phone and I would never get them. (laughs) So I finally started learning I had to call the tasting room. So, you know, during school, if I had any questions or whatever it was, wanting to talk to your parents, I mean, people get homesick, whatever. 
I would find myself calling the business, you know? So it was this kind of funny experience that I started learning that the business isn't the business. We are the business. Sure, yeah. Do you, does that, yeah, that makes make sense? sense? So I started learning that from a really early on in the, in the creation of the business that we are the business. It's not just the business. So I would go, I was at school at the time, I was at Western Carolina. And when my parents would have small events or whatever that we would do, anything where they needed an extra set of hands, <laughs> they would call me and I'd come home for the weekend and work and my sister sure. and I would run, help run the tasting room or whatever it would be. And that was really fun. It's always fun. Events are really fun to do. So when I first started coming into the business, per se, as like an, as a worker, not just part of the family, I need your help, but as somebody that was coming home to help, it was always so much fun. And I was able to see, oh, look at this. This is really neat. Or what if we did it this way? Or just little things. So I would come and go and come and go and just slowly see our regular customers or come back and forth, back and forth for four years while I was in school. And then when I finally graduated from college, um, right before I graduated, I was studying for the MCAT. I th thought I wanted to go to medical school. And during that summer, right before I graduated, I studied for the MCAT right at the tasting room oh, all wow. summer long. I would work for a couple hours, try to make a little bit of money, <laughs> and then study. Because we would be slow enough where I could step away and make note cards or whatever. So that was all well and great. Then one day at school, I got called out by a professor, and it was a microbiology professor, and we were sitting there, and he says, so for this paper, I want you guys to pick a microbe and write a paper about it. And then he just names one off, and it happens to be the wine microbe, Oniacacus oni. Like, anybody know what that is? And the teacher's a brewer. <laughs> and he knows that my family makes wine, because him and I have talked about it before. Yeah. He says, Sophia, do you know what that is? It's a class of like 60 people. I'm like... <laughs> It's a wine bacteria. That's all I said. I was trying to be really nonchalant about it. Like, please don't, please don't ask me to come study with you. Like, I didn't want, you know, that feeling. So I knew exactly what it was. And as I left that day from class, it just occurred to me one day. I was like, why am I not being a part of my parents' business? Like, why don't I work for them? Like, this is fun. Wine is cool. Yeah. That whole thing happened to me one day. And so I called my parents and I said, would y'all be disappointed if I didn't go to medical school and if I came to work for the family business? And they were like, no, we wouldn't be upset at all. <laughs> and, you know, secretly on the other line of the phone, they were probably jumping for joy and doing like cheerleader moves. So, it, so when I came to the business, it was still very small. We didn't have this big patio. We were just the tasting room. And it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And when I graduated from college, that was in 2014. So we had just been open for four years. We were still kind of figuring out the waters. And that was the same year that my dad decided to quit his job. So he quit his real day job to make the winery a full-time thing. So it was kind of like he was getting out of his job, I was getting out of college, and we had two people that were going to be here. And this could actually be like a real business. You know, it wasn't just going to be this, you know, we're all trying to make it happen. Um, so 2014 was the year that we decided we're really going to make a go of this. You know, we're not just making wine for fun and trying to see how, you know what I mean? It, it was like it's for real. No, this is not a hobby anymore. Hobby. This is for yeah. real. That yeah. was the year we bought the sorting table. That was the year that we got the elevator. That was the year I graduated from college and it became all hands on deck. It wasn't just my mom and my dad trying to make this happen. 
It was like, we have the people, we can do it. So it was watching the growth that really started in 2014. It came right at the perfect time because there was an impetus for our growth. It was, the timing was right. Pop was ready to retire from his real job. I was ready to come home to the family business and we had the manpower to do it. So him and I started just getting busier. We started being here. You know, I was open Wednesday through Sunday. We got the road sign on the highway. That was huge. So when all that started happening, we started realizing how are we gonna take care of all these people <laughs> and still feel the way we wanna feel, still feel that small family feel. And that's when we started working on the patios and started really growing the landscaping and trying to keep our feel, that small family feel, but still have that really elevated wine experience. Yeah. But when, you know, when I came home, we were not pouring in crystal glassware yet. We were pouring in our little tumblers and the tasting was in one of those little tumblers and I'd pour a little ounce of wine and I carried every single wine on my belt and just <laughs> ran around the yard and I don't know how I did it. I really don't. I did that for two years. I don't know how I did it. Um, I am so grateful for these patios because I remember the time when I was trying to pour 20 wine tastings, running around the side yard, just trying to get it done. And But now it's we've grown to the point where we're at a comfortable place. We don't want to grow anymore. We're, this is a happy place. We're, we're good at this size, and we don't intend to grow at all. If we do any kind of growth, it'll be private events. Um, Things that are um, low-key, you know, uh, we, we've thought about maybe making a little bit more rosé to put into distribution, but it's just not something that we want to do. We want to be known as that winery where the wines are only available right here. And that's something that makes our wines really special. Absolutely. I mean, so, it, it, it's a special event, too, when you come out here. You yeah, taste it is. the wine. And it's produced here. There's something so special about drinking a bottle of wine right here. I mean... Even drinking it at home is nice, but when you're at the winery and you're sitting out looking over the vines and you know how it's made, it's just a very romantic way to drink a bottle of wine. And that's what we want to give to people is that wine experience. You know, the wine experience is something that I've grown up around. I went to Napa when I was 12 for the first time. I love the culture of wine. I don't drink wine every day. Sometimes I do, but I generally don't. But the culture of wine, that slow down, open up a glass of wine, have a sample, have a little taste of food, that slowing down, that's what it's really about. And when you can give that to people, it it's like people feel like they're on vacation when they're only 30 minutes away from their house. Yeah. And that is so hard to get these days because we live in this instant gratification world. So it's something that, it's not just the wine, it's the experience, it's the feel, it's the music, it's the, it's the whole, it's the whole deal. It's the vibe. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, that vibe is very important. And we hope to, uh, once after COVID, is, like, once we feel comfortable again sure. to be able to do events again, like things that we really want to do, we're excited because our new patio space has really nice, beautiful e evening lighting. So we're hoping, before COVID, we were really kicking off the wine dinner thing. Yeah. And that was so special. And we have so many private chefs that we work with. So we're really hoping to be able to get back to wine dinners soon and be able to invite you know, 30 guests to come socially distance and enjoy a really incredible dining experience and enjoy great wine. So that's something we'd like to bring back. Um, again, it's just waiting for the right time and feeling comfortable with the social environment. Yeah, because that food and wine pairings and that sort of thing, that's kind of what elevates both. No uh, question so about it. One, yeah. thing, one thing to mention, so the patio, 
uh, I think it was November of 2018, I guess it was. We were had been kicking around the podcast idea for oh, a yeah. while, so we were here. We were having some Petit Verdot on the patio. We were talking through some stuff, and that's where the name Cork Talk came to life. It was right here. right here. Right here. On the oh, that's so patio. awesome. About 30 feet over there. Yeah. So, yeah. That is so cool. So. <laughs> I love hearing that. That's so cool. Yeah. It's a good little story. It's nice to be the impetus of so many creative moments. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So you kind of already touched on something right now, um, but let's talk a little bit more about it. So what are some of the things you're looking forward to in the future? Definitely, yeah. So one of the things that is so fun about the farm is constantly diversifying um, and constantly being able to change and do new things, but also stay the same. So one thing that we've added um, this past year was um, making our blueberry patch a U-pick patch. Okay. So we've, we've noticed that we've been able to impact a lot of different people with that, um, with the blueberry patch. People from all over the place because we're offering something different. So we're not, we are a winery and a vineyard, but we're not just a winery. We're a agricultural pursuit. We are a farm and we, we grow chickens, we grow eggs, we do blueberries. We have a huge fig production. Um, so we've actually partnered with a couple of breweries this past year to be able to sell different kinds of fruit so that we can do partnerships. So this year we actually partnered with New Groove Brewing in South Carolina. So they'll be actually, they made a beer this year with 200 pounds of Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so they're going to be doing some new things as well. So we've got a couple of really cool partnerships that we're doing. Um, the Blueberry Patch is so exciting. Um, but something that I'm just super pumped about is... Everyone knows that we're that we have really cool plants. If you visited the tasting room before, you see all of our pots. We have this crazy affinity for growing plants. We have green thumbs. Um, the only thing <laughs> we don't thing have, have, the only thing we don't have, is a greenhouse, <laughs> and that's something that we're going to be um, getting into this year. Oh, cool! Um, so there's so many plants that we have that are so exotic that we'd love to be able to offer for our guests as well sure. so succulents are a really big deal right now yeah um we're really excited to get into the the greenhouse um nice business um something i've wanted to do for a really long time aside from what we do on the farm um i love growing produce and it'd be really awesome to be able to grow it in a controlled environment oh yeah um that's one thing that's so hard about agriculture is that it's so unpredictable. But if you have a greenhouse, you can do everything exactly how you want it. Yep, yep. Uh, so that's something that we're really excited to get into. Um, so we'll be able to offer a, a variety of different um, products to our guests coming in the future. Um, we're really looking forward to, uh, to that aspect. The figs, the blueberries, the produce, the wine, the ports. We have some new ports that are going to be coming out soon. Nice. Um, we're always trying to stay on our toes and trying to bring out something new and different. Very cool. Very cool. So in addition to the farm, though, there's also the villa. So oh, the villas. The villa. <laughs> yeah, so there's not just one. There's two. Sure, yeah. Um, so the villas are so beautiful. Um, we decided a couple years ago that we wanted to start offering um, lodging to our guests. A lot of folks that come to our place come from over an hour away. Mm -hmm. um, same th goes for Yadkinville and a lot of other wine areas. People drive from far away, and the last thing I want for our guests to do is to drink and drive. So the villas are really perfectly appointed. 
there's two. One has a vineyard view. One has a beautiful meadow view. Uh, they're both on a single single layer plan, so there's no steps. They're handicap accessible. Um, but the best part is that they're private. Um, they have these beautiful windows, huge views, nice lighting, and all of the all of the villas are decorated with Cuban artwork. So nice. when we took a trip to Cuba several years ago, part of that trip was to collect artwork. And so we collected enough pieces to be able to furnish the tasting room in both of the villas and to be able to circulate that art through them. Oh, cool. So we have a huge portfolio of incredible artwork that folks can enjoy in the villas. Um, each of the villas comes with a complimentary bottle of wine and cheese and crackers, and folks can enjoy the grounds. Um, it's, really, it's really awesome. They both sleep um, two couples, so you can sleep four comfortably. They come with um, you know, the full kitchen, full bath, porches, grill, Everything you can think of, they've got them. Home away from home. Home away from home. Get on property, bring your groceries. You don't have anywhere to go. You can stay all weekend long. (laughs) Sounds perfect. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So we're kind of winding down on the questions. Um, One of the things that we always like to ask toward the end of the conversation is, what is it you want customers to know when they come here to visit Over Mountain Vineyards? That's an easy one. That's an easy one. So the thing that I always want people to know when they visit is that we're... We're a really small moms and pops winery. We are the epitome of a moms and pops joint. Um, my mom and dad started this business, and they, when they had the vision to start this business, you know, we had no idea where where we would go and how how it would take us, and that we would be sitting here right now. I mean, I never thought we would be featured in magazines or podcasts or whatever. That is, I never thought we would be here. Um, you know, so. When you think about, you know, what you want people to know when they come here, I want them to know that we're a small family-owned winery and that everything that these folks taste and that everything that they enjoy about coming here is directly coming from us and that we're doing all of the winemaking, all of the production is done with tender love and care and that the whole experience that we're trying to bring people is of the best winemaking experience, the best wine tasting experience. And that when they leave, they learned a little something different or they had something, an experience that was unique. Um, not every guest wants to learn about the wine, but every guest is looking for something. And we want to give that something to our guests, whether or not it's a moment of relaxation, whether or not it's the best Chablis tasting Chardonnay they've ever had, whether or not it's just learning how to properly taste wine with the five S's, whatever it might be, we want to give that to our guests. We want to provide them with the best, most comfortable wine tasting experience that they can have and enjoy with the beautiful setting. And I don't think there's anything else that you could want for a guest. This is just, not. you know, you just want them to have the best wine tasting experience you could possibly have. It's why we pour in Riedel. Yeah. You know, I, I want every time someone grabs that glass of wine for it to express the wine perfect. Can't pour in anything less. You know, I mean, yeah. you just can't. Absolutely. You got to express it the way that it'll show itself as the best. So even the glassware matters. We would agree on that. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not saying we're Riedel snobs, but we're kind yeah, of Riedel snobs. I mean, you got to do what and you got to do. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> hey, I'm, when, I'm out, when I'm out in the garden and I'm, when I'm out doing something, I totally use my stemless tumbler. Right. You know, I don't mind doing that. But yeah. when I'm sitting there and we're amongst friends and you're opening up a nice bottle of wine, you don't pour nice wine in crappy glassware. Exactly. Absolutely. So as we as we wind things down, um, tell our listeners exactly where they can find you physically and virtually. Yeah, definitely. So 
if you are an online listener or a um, Facebook person or whatever, get onto Facebook, um, type in Over Mountain Vineyards. We're the first one to pop up. If you're an Instagram lover, just get onto Instagram. Um, our Instagram is always current. We're always posting something up. You can find out about what's happening for the weekend, new events, whatever it might be. Um, and then, of course, you can always get onto our website, which is www.overmountainvineyards.com. And you can make reservations online or just contact us directly through our website. Physically, we're in Tryon, North Carolina. Our address is 2012 Sandy Plains Road. And if you type in Overmountain Vineyards into your GPS, it'll take you right to us. Perfect. Excellent. Well, Sophia, we want to definitely thank you for having us out today. We definitely appreciate getting out, enjoying the nice sunshine weather, socially distancing. There's plenty of room for it here. Yeah, it's nice uh, to social distance with you guys, too. It is. It's it been is. a long time since I've been able to share a glass of wine with people that aren't my direct family. Exactly. <laughs> so this is really nice. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, we definitely appreciate it as well. So thank you again for the conversation. We definitely appreciate it. And here's to many more. Yeah, definitely. And thank to all so the much. listeners, we look forward to you guys making a reservation and coming out to visit us. Definitely make sure you make that reservation. Absolutely. Thank you again, Sophie. Cheers. Cheers. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Sophia. As you can hear from our conversation, everyone at Over Mountain is dedicated to creating a memorable experience that showcases their quality-driven wines. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, Cork Only Talks when it's out of the bar. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.